Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 9. I'm going to read a hefty chunk of it. Um, We're going to go from uh, chapter 9, verse 10, where we left uh, off last time, and go uh, almost to the end of chapter 11. We're going to finish at verse 11, which may seem a strange thing to do, um, because there's another verse in the ESV. But actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the, the chapter number finishes at uh, verse 11. So we're just going to stop there. And I think thematically, uh, there is a break there. And the verse 12 really introduces chapter 12. So um, let's read from Zia chapter 9, verse 10. And he's speaking about Israel in various different ways. And uh, you may look out for the ways in which he describes the kind of images that he uses to describe Israel. So verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor, Baal Peor, and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception, Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them until none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They They shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths they make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the fields. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. They have, there they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. The nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. 
Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck, that, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plough, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have ploughed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel, on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and, and burning, uh, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not... They shall not return to the land of Egypt. I'm going to read the alternative version. If you look at a footnote in the ESV, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over to O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, these things are difficult to to follow sometimes and to understand, and therefore we pray to help us to, uh, to see clearly, Lord, bring light to Uh, Your word we pray by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So so those of you who have been Christians for a while, um, uh, I wonder if you've ever found yourself uh, looking wistfully at past experiences that you've had. um, Past experiences of God's grace in your life. And you know the kind of thing, the fond memories of times of rich blessing that you've had from God and uh, you wish, sometimes you think, oh, I wish I could go back to those days. And, um, you know, it might be your conversion. You think of the glorious days after your conversion. And you remember the joy that you entered into when you found the Lord Jesus Christ. Or rather, that Jesus Christ found you and uh, gathered you up into him. 
It might be that you're part of a, a church or a fellowship group. Uh, and it was just the best thing. You know, you loved it. And uh, you, you went with eagerness. It was so good. You couldn't keep away on Sunday. You wanted to go and you wanted to meet with Christian brothers and sisters to pray with them and uh, all these wonderful things. Uh, and all because you anticipated that God would come and do amazing things uh, amongst you uh, and speak to you through his word. And all of these are glorious things, memories that you can have. And you could list all of these wonderful experiences that you've had as a Christian. And of course that could bring a, a negative effect into your life. You could... Um, Things might not be so rosy now. You may think, well, it's not as good now as it was then. And um, you no longer have the joy that you once had. And uh, you don't seem to have so many Christian friends any longer. And uh, you become a little bit jaded and a bit uh, kind of sad about it. And, uh, and you don't find coming to church easy. And you find it quite difficult. And uh, every time it comes around, you think, well, should I go tonight? And, uh, should I bother? And... Um, you know, you, you start making excuses for yourself, and they all sound like great excuses, but you're just making those excuses uh, not to, uh, to get involved as you once did. And there's a danger, of course, that you begin to complain, and you, begin to, uh, uh, and, and you begin to blame other people for these things, and you, you start talking about them or these other people. They don't help me. They don't serve my needs. They don't uh, look after me. They don't, uh, you know, you're okay, but they're the problem. These other people are the problem. You get this kind of jaded and complaining kind of spirit that develops into you. And that warm memory of the past becomes a kind of uh, source of, of bitterness and blaming others. Uh, that's a negative effect that you, those warm memories can have. But the, the warm memory of experiences past could also have another effect, a more positive effect. That in remembering past blessings, you turn to God and you seek him once again. Uh, because you know that, he could, that there is blessing to be found. That, uh, and you realize that in doing so, as you come to him, as you seek him out, you realize that many of the problems you're facing are actually not problems with them out there, but they're actually problems with you and your sins. And you've, you've, you've actually kind of sowed sins into your life that you've been neglecting and the weeds have grown up in your life and so on. Uh, all of these things, you know, all of these things are not caused by other people. They're caused by your own sinfulness. And, uh, and that's a, good, a necessary step, isn't it, in seeking God's face, that you're brought face to face with your need uh, of his continuing grace in your life. And, uh, and so you, you begin to confess your sins, and you begin to um, look to God more, and you f- seek his help, uh, and you begin to re- discover the purpose for which God has called you. Um, and you start listening to his word and paying attention and you repent of your sins and you reevaluate your life in front of him um, so that you might begin to serve him all the more. So that's a positive outcome that can happen by thinking back to those warm memories of the past. I think this passage will help us do that and stop us being, becoming jaded and a bit negative and critical. Because it presents to us many of the blessings that God has given his people and how they have abused the blessings that he's given them. And it's there in scripture so that we can look at it and we can learn and begin to repent of our own sins. 
Well, this passage, quite a lengthy passage, is, is actually a, a complete section. At least most commentators say that. It's a kind of complete section. It's got four little speeches, uh, um, four little kind of um, images that are used um, to describe the, the place of what, what's happening to Israel. Now, you, since chapter 4, we've been going through it, and it's been quite unrelentingly miserable, isn't it? It's been very difficult uh, to read, and it's quite difficult to preach, to be honest. Um, but it's, it's been difficult, because it's so deep and difficult are the sins uh, of the, the people of Israel. And, um, but we need to thank God that he brings these things to our attention so that we can examine our own lives in the light of his, his word. And, um, you know, it's, it's all about people who have lost their way. Uh, and it's a, a corporate thing. It's, it's a, people, a whole people who have lost their way with God. They have broken covenant with God. Israel has been unfaithful in this kind of divine marriage that God has established through his covenant with his people. And Israel has been unfaithful. And so God is going to bring about a, what I call a temporal judgment, a, a judgment in time. It's not the ultimate judgment. But there are going to be circumstances that are going to happen to Israel that are a fruit of God's uh, judgment on his people, a chastisement on his people. And it's going to involve the nations around. It's going to be involve Assyria particularly. Israel eventually will be, a few years after Hosea, Israel will be overrun by Assyria. Israel is the northern kingdom, of course, and Judah eventually will be overrun by the Babylonians. And uh, it is... Uh, um, a, a searching experience to go through these, uh, to read these words. And as we come to this section, chapters 9 through to 11, there's, there's quite a lot of nostalgia here. There's a kind of wistful thinking about how things were in the past and how they, compared to how they are now. And uh, there's a deep kind of sadness about the situation of Israel. Um, But as we'll see, none of that will change the fact that God is not absolutely finished with his people. That beyond this temporal judgment, there is hope. And we'll come to that as we come to the end of the chapter. So the passage uses um, four metaphors, if you like, four images to describe the people of Israel. And uh, the first three are agricultural. So if you look at chapter 9, verse 10, they are like, uh, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. That's the first one. Second one is in chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The third one is in uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. Interesting. And then the last one is uh, 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. A beloved child. So the first three are agricultural. Three things here. (laughs) Three agricultural pictures, and then one uh, a family familial picture, which helps us to understand God's attitude to his his own people. And I want to just work through those metaphors with you. So the first one shows us, and here's the headline, um, a people who chose not to listen to God. A people who chose not to listen to God. And he does this through the picture of uh, grapes in the wilderness. It's, 
Um, and uh, it's, it's a picture of discovery in a sense. God puts it into our minds that you know, this, is, this is God finding something beautiful and uh, wanting to then enjoy the fruit of what he finds. And Israel is this, uh, this, these, these grapes uh, in the middle of a, a wilderness, a desert. You know? and so a desert is a place where not much grows. Uh, nothing much grows, it's arid and it's austere and no one, no one would want to be there for very long but then you find this, this plant, this, uh, these grapes growing in the middle of it and uh, it's an amazing thing and uh, you know, it's just one <laughs> just standing there by itself in the middle of this desert and uh, you know, it makes you smile, you take delight in it this is God, you see, coming and finding delight in his people and it's a beautiful picture, you see, of relationship between God and his people. That uh, uh, they were nobodies in the middle of the desert, and then God comes and, he, and his smile breaks out over them, as it were. And he wants to bless them and tend to this, uh, this young plant and cares for them. And um, he's looking for the fruit. And the fruit is in the form of children, you know, a growth, a, a growth of a people. This, the, the fruit, fruitfulness is... is in that kind of Genesis sense, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and, uh, but then something happens. And you may have noticed that there's a couple of place names that are mentioned in, uh, a couple of bad things happen, a couple of place names that, where bad things happened in the history of Israel. Uh, one is uh, Baal Peor in verse 10. They came to, when they, they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. Now, what is that about? Well, it's, it's about Baal, which is a pagan god, so it doesn't sound good right from the start. Uh, and, it's, and it's referring, of course, to the, the Israelites. You might know your, uh, your, the book of Numbers. And um, after 40 years in the wilderness, the, uh, the people of Israel start passing, heading northwards, and they pass through Moab. Uh, which is just on the eastern side of the Jordan, and uh, passing through Moab, a pagan nation. And uh, ba- uh, Baal Peor is a mountain. Remember Balaam, Balaam and the donkey. And uh, Balaam has to, is invited to go and uh, curse the people of Israel. And he refuses to do it under God's hand. And, uh, but, but what happens just after that event is that the people are kind of sucked in to the pagan worship of the Moabites. They begin to kind of, the men begin to fraternize with the women and so on. They begin to marry each other. And, you know, and, you know when you know, things go badly, if you've got different gods in that marriage, and uh, the people get sucked into this Baal worship, and they give themselves to this thing of shame. And, uh, and so there, the seeds of idolatry are kind of sown even before they've got to the promised land. Um, and then the second place is Gilgal, which is in verse 15. Uh, Gilgal, you may remember from our midweek Bible study, is, uh, uh, was a place, a base of operations. It was the entry point, if you like, into, into uh, Canaan. And they set up the stones and, uh, to me- remember God's goodness. And uh, it's, so it's a good thing. You know, in, in a sense, it's a good place, a good pla- place of good memories of God's blessing upon them. But then something bad happens later on. So the first king is, is uh, anointed, is, is sorry, set apart and uh, proclaimed king, Saul, uh, at Gilgal. 
um, where the people cry out for a king. Um, but it's also the place where Saul began, uh, failed to obey God. And so he thought he was doing the right thing. He, he was told to sacrifice uh, all the sheep uh, to God. And uh, Saul thinks better of that and says, well, I'll, I'll sacrifice some sheep and keep others. And then Samuel, the prophet, comes along and says, what's this bleating I hear in my ears? You didn't obey the Lord, and the Lord rejects Saul and his kingship and puts David on the throne instead. But it's the beginning of this idolatry of disobedience to God. And so Gilgal is a place of fallenness and and brokenness and disobedience. And so these two places, Baal, Peor, and and Gilgal, uh, they're places where Israel showed signs of its incipient idolatry. And falling away from God. And, you know, the basic problem here is, is found in verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. The people of Israel did not listen to God. They thought they had it all, back, all down and sorted. But they didn't listen. Oh, they went to church all right. They did all their sacrifices. They went through the motions. They had fallen out of the habits of listening to God. They heard the words. They nodded at the right places. They didn't take God seriously. They didn't want to apply God's word to their lives. Because they knew better, you see. They developed other interests and uh, will fit God in as, as it is convenient for us. That's a warning, isn't it? That we have a God that delights in bringing about beautiful fruit in the wilderness. Of multiplying his people. And he delights in taking unlikely looking people. And making something wonderful of them. And planting them and caring for them and tending them. And he wants to do so much for you and for me. In the same way today. That maybe you're somebody who's got out of the habit of closing your ears to God's word. Not paying attention. And this word, you see, is, is, is nourishment for our souls. It builds us up. It strengthens us. And it can cause us to grow and, grow and flourish as the people of God. Have you got into bad habits that you no longer listen to? Him? So that's the first image. Um, uh, grapes in the wilderness. Here's the second image. And the headline of this, uh, the second image is in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. Um, and the headline for this is a people with a false heart that abuses God's blessings. A people with a false heart that abuses God's blessings. The, the metaphor takes the idea a bit further now. It's, not simply a plant in the, in the wilderness, but now a luxurious vine. Luxuriant vine. And Israel is, the picture here is one of Israel established uh, in the promised land. Uh, they're beginning to enjoy the benefits of that land of milk and honey and so on. And uh, there's so many good things that are happening to the people of Israel. And so. Uh, they, they're bearing fruits. And fruit here is used in a slightly different sense. It's not the children any longer, but it's, the, it's all the material blessings 
that they are gaining by being in the promised land. And but that's not all. Alongside this material prosperity that the people started to enjoy, they begin to grow in idolatry. So you see there in verse, the end of verse 1 of 10, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars, the pillars of his temples and so on. Um, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillow, p- uh, pillars. Um, and this is all spelled out in what follows uh, in great detail. That a disregard for God in verse 3 becomes I- the open idolatry of calf worship. Um, and setting up these calf idols to, to worship in the, in the high places. And the people give themselves to this idolatry. And the result of this is that the people are going to be deported to Assyria. Verse 6, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. And God promises this coming discipline in verse 10. uh, When I please. So it's in God's timing. When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them. And they are bound up for their... when they are bound up for their double iniquity. And, and that happens in the end because Assyria does come and deports them all. Now the root problem of this, of course, is that their heart is false. And that's such a dangerous condition to be in, to have, uh, to have a heart that's false, to be doing the right things, but have a heart that is false. Because a false heart allows a person to to say whatever is necessary to be acceptable and to do so before God. You, you see in verse 4, he says, They utter mere words with empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. But in reality, you see, their, their hearts are not in it. This is the, the, day, the constant danger, I think, of, of people who go to church is that their hearts are not in it somehow. They feel a sense of ought about it. They do it. But in, in their hearts of hearts, they'd really be somewhere, rather be somewhere else and doing something else. Rather than giving themselves to God. And so people have always found it easy to say what is necessary to be said for a social convention or whatever. But don't really care much about the consequences of saying those false things. But God hears and sees everything. He knows the state of the heart. He knows... Uh, the falsity of it. He knows the emptiness of our words when we say it. It's one, thing, one of the things I labor at when doing membership classes is, you know, you get five questions to answer I do, I will to, or something. And it's easy just to say I will. But what I really care about is, is your heart in those questions. From beginning to end, from now and forevermore, is your heart in those questions. Because we all make promises when we come into membership. God sees whether we're serious about it or not. He sees the falseness of our hearts or the truth of our hearts. He sees it all. So I wonder if you've ever thought about this for your own life. Are you, uh, are the, what about the promises and commitments that you make generally in life? Whether large or small, to people or to God, 
Are you a person of your word? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? Do you do what you say you'll do? Can you be relied upon? Are you true to your word? Well, a people with a false heart that abuses God's blessings. Thirdly, um, and this is uh, verse 11, Ephraim is a trained calf that loved to thresh. And the headline here is, a people who do not want to fulfill their purpose. A people who don't want to fulfill their purpose. So it moves to this image of an animal. Israel is an animal, a heifer, a cow. And um, Ephraim here is used interchangeably with Israel, just in case you're wondering what that is. Ephraim is one of the tribes of the northern kingdom. And Ephraim is usually representative of the whole uh, of the other ten tribes. Now the point here is, is that the calf has something to do. It has a job to do. People don't have calves... Uh, animals on a farm for nothing as pets. Um, you know, talk to a farmer, he doesn't think of his animals as pets. They do, they've got a job to do. And um, uh, yeah, here, the, the calf is uh, used to, to thresh. What does that mean? Well, it, you know, when you harvest, these, these are old times before machinery, you see. And when you harvest the, the crops, and you've got all these bales of, all these sheaves of, hay, of, of grain and so on. You know, the, the grain is at the top and the, the stalks are still attached. And you've got to separate the grain from the, the stalks. Well, how do you do that? We trample on it. And uh, the best thing to do is to get a cow to do it rather than people because the weight does the thrashing better. And, uh, and uh, I, I actually found a video. There was a place in, I found a video of a, some cows in Tajikistan thrashing because they didn't have any machinery. So they, they yoke these four cows together in a big pile of uh, harvested grain. And they get these cows to kind of just walk around on top of the, the grain. And then eventually they just scoop it all up. And then eventually they have to winnow it, you see, you have to separate it out. But now it's separated on the ground, you see. So this is, so this is the job that the calf is to do. It's, uh, it's to do this. Um, and... Uh, and it could be used for other things. It could be used to plough. It could be used to, to harrow the ground, ready for planting and so on. So there's jobs to be done. All of this um, uh, is no longer relevant to today as mostly machines do it today. But, but this is an inter- a useful metaphor in understanding that, that the people of Israel and God's people uh, have a job to do. God has given them a job to do. They have a purpose. There is a goal and Israel has been chosen by God from nowhere. Out of all the peoples of the earth, to, to serve God, to, to do as he requires, uh, to do the things that he calls them to do. And this is, the, this is, of course, the implication of the covenant that he enters into, that God graciously comes in covenant, and then he put, puts requirements on his people. And so their job is actually to keep covenant with God, to obey his commands, to do all the things, to order society in such a way that the commands are kept. And the people live holy and righteous lives. And of course, that's, none of that is easy. Uh, to, 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 be, to have that purpose is to do work. And it's not easy. 
And it requires commitment and dedication. It's hard work. And to be faithful to God is hard work. To be faithful day by day, hour by hour. To remain on task, as it were. To, be, to do what God requires of you in, every, in each and every situation. But in all of this, of course, there's a prospect of a reward at the end of it. The harvest brings about the, the grain and the bread that comes from it. And the joy of, of in the fruits of the harvest. And that's the same for our Christian lives. There is, we do this because we look forward to the goal, the joy of eternal life. But, there's always a but. <laughs> the people of Israel have done their own thing. Instead of plowing good things into their lives, they have plowed iniquity. Verse 13, you have plowed iniquity. And there's a kind of therefore, a silent therefore, therefore you have reaped injustice. You've eaten the fruit of lies. See, iniquity is a form of sin, of rebelliousness, of of rebellious wickedness. And the people have built into their lives, into their way of life, habits that are actually sinful. And in the long run, it bears the fruit of injustice. This is what happens to any society that that beds sin into its society and into its national life. You know, injustice begins to flourish. It can be what happens in a nation. It can be with all those laws that seem to be deviating from God's word. You've got a nation that suddenly starts suffering from all kinds of strange injustices. It can happen in a church where sins are allowed to take root and people begin to take a bl- you know, turn a blind eye to, to the sins that are present in a church. And in the end, you, you find that there's no justice to be found and you don't want to be amongst brothers and sisters in that setting. People don't want to come to church like that because there's no justice. People don't treat you well. So this is a people who did not want to fulfill their purpose. And that, you can see how that applies to us today. God calls us today to fulfill a purpose, to live for him. Are you living for him? Are you seeking to fulfill your purpose? Well, there's three metaphors. Uh, gives a powerful picture of how things began well for the people of God, but then became uh, uh, terrible. But the final metaphor is a bit different. And this is chapter 11. And what we see here, and this is a headline, is uh, a God who will bring about a new exodus. A God who will bring about a new exodus. The metaphor here is, is that of a beloved child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And the tenderness and love of God is, is spelled out in verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him I took them up by their arms, they did not, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. You see, and this is uh, this wonderful picture of how things went so well with God and his grace and his kindness to his people. Uh, but then they follow us, you know, now familiar path. Things go wrong. 
Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, they shall not, uh, he shall not raise them up at all. So they're still calling out to God symbolically, if you like, uh, doing all the religious things. But actually, their, their hearts have turned away from God. And, um, and this temporal judgment is going to come. And verses 5 and 6 spell that out. They, they shall surely, uh, just note the footnote there, uh, if you've got an ESV, it's surely, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own uh, counsels. Uh, this judgment's coming. And uh, so that's a terrible picture, and it's a familiar one by now as we've been going through these things. But then some, but something else is happening here. Something else emerges and begins to emerge. That even though this judgment at the hands of the nations will come, God says this in verse 8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma and treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. And so on. And so it closes with this heart moving, uh, this heart moving words from God about his desire for Ephraim, even though they are so sinful. And so these final verses hold out a hope that goes beyond this temporal judgment of, under Assyria, where it paints a picture of people who will return to God. He will return after that judgment. What's going on here? Well, certainly something interesting happening in the way that Hosea is speaking here. And you'll notice that Egypt comes up a number of times in this chapter. Um, Out of Egypt I call my son, verse 1. Or verse 5. They shall surely return to the land of Egypt. Or verse 11, they shall come trembling from, uh, like birds from Egypt. Um, now historically, Israel didn't go to Egypt. They were taken away by the Assyrians to, you know, to the east. They didn't go to Egypt. So why the reference to Egypt here at all? Well, I think what's happening here is that Hosea is actually taking a piece of Old Testament scripture, earlier Old Testament scripture, and applying it to the current situation of the people of Israel. And that earlier part of scripture is the story of the Exodus, where they were in Egypt And they were led out of Egypt in God's glorious and wonderful redemption from slavery. And Hosea is taking that pattern, if you like, that type, and saying, this is the model you need to have in your minds as you think about what God is doing to you, Israel, now. And so, 
What is about to happen to the people of Israel? What is commonly known as the exile in that intertestamental period. That exile is rather like an exodus. The story of the exodus and the events leading up to the exodus. That there's going to be a new captivity. But after that captivity, there will be a return. As it were, a new exodus. Now the question is, how is that going to happen? And if you go back to verse 1, you'll notice some, some of you eagle-eyed Bible scholars will have recognized that verse. Because it pops up in the New Testament. And if you've got a cross-reference, you'll see it's, it's, it's referred to in your cross-references. Because you remember that when Jesus, baby Jesus, was threatened by Herod, and Herod was going about killing all the children under the age of two, what did Mary and Joseph do? They went down to Egypt. And basically crashed out and hid for a while until Herod was dead. And then they could return. But then at the end of that little account, Matthew says... This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. In other words, he's quoting Hosea 11 verse 1 and applying it to something about Jesus. See, Matthew sees... That the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that's held out for the people of Israel in Hebrews chapter 11. Not simply that Jesus literally went to Egypt. It's much more than that. Because if you think about that verse, it's actually the wrong way around, isn't it? You know, Jesus went to Egypt and it's a fulfillment of being drawn out of Egypt. How is that? Well, only if you, it only makes sense if you realize it's part of a bigger picture. That Jesus Christ has come to lead this new exodus. That he will lead his people out of darkness into the light of his new kingdom. And friends, this is, this is where Jesus Christ comes in. And I know it seems a bit obscure. But this is how the the apostles thought about the Old Testament scripture. They thought deeply about it. And they understood what Hosea was saying. That the Son of God was going to come as the King of the people of Israel. And he was going to lead his people out of that period of exile. That the original exile was simply a pattern, if you like, of this greater exile, a greater exodus that's coming. That Jesus Christ is going to lead. You see, the old covenant was only one step along the way of God's redemptive purposes. And in a sense, it was only setting the scene for the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And he would lead his people out of darkness so that they could come home to be with God forever. 
All the scriptures about Jesus Christ in the end. It all points to him. And so, as we read the Old Testament, sometimes it's baffling. But we need to be looking for Jesus Christ in the midst of it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your words and thank you for the, uh, the warnings and the challenges that these verses present to us. But most of all, we pray you'd help us to see Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords who leads his people in a new exodus. That we would be willing to follow him without complaining and grumbling as the people of Israel did in that first exodus. But rather joyfully following him in the midst of all our trials and troubles. That we would follow him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.